Everyone knows Law Matters was created to open the lines of communication between law enforcement and the community. Over the course of the last year, we have become painfully aware of the very negative headlines national media projected across the country regarding all law enforcement agencies. Over the last several months, and after numerous investigations, we have learned that these negative headlines did not tell the whole story but rather painted a picture designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Law Matters wants you to hear all the facts so you can decide for yourself. As these investigations conclude, these stories will be featured on our Truth Matters page on lawmatters1030.org website. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are going to talk about drugs. And in and I have two professionals who know everything there is to know about drugs in the studio. (laughs) We have Desiree, she's from the Community Medical Services, and we have Dan from Kodak. And I have recommended people to go to Kodak. I'm not sure where you're located, but I've told them, look it up, go to Kodak. So let's, let's first hear a little bit about you. Desiree, tell us a little bit about your background and why you got involved in this industry. So I am a person in recovery currently. Um, I've been in recovery for a little bit over five years now. Um, I started using substances when I was about 16 and they progressively got worse. Um, I spent time in and out of jail, in and out of prison, um, on probation, on parole, not successfully completing most of it. Um, and now I work with community medical services as a correctional health supervisor. So I work with other people that are experiencing opioid use disorder and are justice involved. So people that are on probation, parole, in jail, in prison. And I use my lived experience to kind of help them and to break stigma that people may have re- regarding substance use. And there's there's a lot of that, and we're going to get into that, too. Dan, tell us about your background and, and why you got involved in the industry. Yeah, I've been in this field since 1985. It originally started when I was working in Los Angeles and doing some volunteer work in downtown L.A., around the around the, the Skid Row areas of L.A. and the, and the produce markets of L.A., um, really came into the field as, as a family member of, that, of a family that had its... A lot of substance abuse issues. Uh, um, in my, my 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 brothers, my Vietnam vet brothers, all of their friends, everybody that I was around as a kid, I was get being able to watch them and see them and see this life. And some of them telling me how wonderful it was as they crawled around on the floor and vomited and all kinds of other other things. And and just really came to this field because of my friends, because of my families, and and what happens. You wanted to help them. Absolutely. Okay. Does it take a college degree to do what you're doing? Is there some type of a learning certificate for this? Um, the For me, the only thing that I have is a peer support certification that I obtained through La Frontera um, about four years ago. Um, so it's it's a lot of using my experience to kind of tag School in. School of hard help. knocks. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. There there are a lot of different ways to come into the field. Yes, mm-hmm. there are there are degree programs. Become therapists. There are specializations in substance abuse treatment, so you can learn a, a lot of those pieces. A lot of the the staff that work, they'll come through the peer support end, and I think that peer support is really important. So when. I look around and drive around the city of Tucson and I see all these homeless people. I understand that a lot of them are drug addicts. Is this true? 
Um, a lot are, you know, the people experiencing homelessness do have a tendency to use substances and misuse substances. And a lot of it is trying to cope with mental health illnesses and trying to self-medicate. Um, a lot of, we have a lot of untreated mental health illnesses out there. And, um, you know, a lot of them are there because they're highly frustrated with the systems put in place. And, you know, you see people and they say, I don't want help. But if you go a little bit further and ask them why they don't want help, you're going to find a whole slew of answers. And it's just taking the time to find out why they may still be in the situation that they have. They Either the medications may put them into like a zombie-like state where they don't feel like themselves. Um, they may not be ready to stop using at this present moment. Um, they may have tried to get help in the past and got lost in the system, which happens quite often where we try to go relocate somebody that has qualified for housing and they've already been moved from that encampment and it's hard to find them after that. So when you're looking at people on the street mm -hmm. and you know that there's organizations like yours and several others um, and people don't want to go there to get the help they need do they need insurance does is it free does, how does that part work there's all kinds of funds available for people who want treatment and it isn't always the case that they don't want to go there sometimes they're not sure how to go there sometimes there's just that that fear of going there and making those kind of changes because it is really difficult to enter treatment but yes if a person has has access is on the on a, med, a medicaid program medicaid pay, pays for treatment there's a lot of private insurances that pay for treatment there are there are, are state and federal grants that are available that pay for people who have no other insurance and if you come into treatment one of the things that also happens is there are people there that try to get you all of those other kind of benefits not just so you can get substance use treatment but you can get medical treatments you can get you can get all of all of the rest of the wraparound services that that you look for and, and help you support recovery okay when you say wraparound services what all do they qualify these people for because it would seem to me they're indigent they're on the street they're begging for money they're spending their money on drugs what you know they need help Mm -hmm. And I don't think the state of Arizona is doing a great job helping these people. My opinion. Usually I don't give my opinion. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we could do better. I think there we should have facilities that would help these people. And before the show, we were talking about it's not a, a one-stop shop when it comes to recovery from drugs. Everybody has their own road or their own path that mm -hmm. they have to go down describe those to me explain explain that part so you know normally when you have a disease or there may be a couple different treatment plans and treatment plan options available and it's kind of a little bit more linear um, when it comes to substance use and, and trying to find somebody's path to recovery um, it can take many different things and it may take trying those same, same things multiple times and you know sometimes detox work for somebody sometimes residential work for some somebody jail sometimes work for people um you know mat treatment works well you know works for people too um what, what, what's that mat treatment i'm sorry uh, medication for opioid use disorders so things like methadone suboxone vivitrol that kind of so uh, it kind of depends on what drug they're taking yeah it mm -hmm. does depend on what what substance that they're using yes okay so if somebody goes into jail do, can they get help while they're in jail or is that just a cold turkey you're going off drugs because we don't have any here. So if they're previously enrolled in an opioid treatment program like CMS or Kodak or COPE, 
They will continue the medication while they're incarcerated. Um, they provide them with methadone, suboxone, or naltrexone while, while incarcerated. Um, so that way they can continue that form of treatment. And uh, we coordinate with the jail actually quite frequently to m- ensure that our clients have um, access to their medication. If they're not on any type of services when they enter the facility, then unfortunately they have to wait till they get out in order to start services. Yeah. Now I have been told that the medical provider at the jail is looking to be able to start inductions on folks needing to get the licensing and, and everything mm-hmm. that they need in order to do that. An induction is, is engaging them into and, and starting them on medication-assisted treatment with whichever medication is going to be the medication of choice, whether it's Suboxone, Methadone, you know, uh, Vivitrol, or even for, for somebody whose issue is alcohol to help both minimize the withdrawals and also do the medication-assisted treatment for alcohol use. So they have to be on a program before they go into jail. Jail's trying to get approved to mm-hmm. help actually so they're kind of turning the jail into a recovery place why would why would these people be in jail is it just because of drugs or you know do they go to jail for other reasons and they uh, happen to be on drugs so normally i would say drugs are the cause of a lot of the reasons why people are incarcerated i mean you get those antisocial behaviors when people get so desperate that they're going to any means to get the substances that they need not to go into that withdrawals um, with fentanyl in play the withdrawals come in a lot stronger a lot harder and a lot quicker so it's a constant of people trying to chase not just the high anymore it's just trying to stay well and medication for opioid use disorder especially reduces the risk of overdose by 75 percent once a person's released from incarceration so if they're Absolutely. incarcerated and they're not on mat services their risk of overdose death once they get released is a lot higher than if they were on that medication and were released so if they get released from jail shouldn't they be put into a different facility that you know, maybe they can get a job and stay on this program. For some folks at the jail, there is a program now in which mm-hmm. as they release folks from jail, they release them directly to the treatment providers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like Kodak will be at the jail every Monday morning at least, picking people up from jail that are being released and bringing them directly out to our clinic where we can really do the assessments. If we need to start on medications, they can start on medications. They can get enrolled in some of the other kinds of treatments that Desiree mentioned. Um, we do we do connect people to employment supports. All those things happen, employment support, employment training, though, you know, so that those things happen. Maybe if they need to see a therapist, then they, there's some other, other issues around that. We connect them with therapy. We connect them with a case manager. We connect them with peer support. We connect them with employment services um, you know start them on medications if they need the medications in our clinic they also if they don't not engage with a primary care provider we'll, we'll make sure they see a primary care provider the same day do you ask these while you're interviewing people do you ask them you know where did you get the drugs that started you off on this this journey of drug addiction um, that usually comes with counseling and the therapy part portion of things. They usually kind of get into more of the, the nitty gritty of, you know, past traumas and things like that and what, what kind of kickstarter the substance use. I, I know for me, it was just, you know, it's socialization. It was, uh, drinking with friends and it started that route and then kind of cascaded from there into the party drugs like, mm-hmm ecstasy cocaine and that that. kind of stuff and you know kind of kept on progressing from there so everybody has their different place of when they started why they started um everybody has their own story 
Right, and and we really assess the impact on that indi- mm-hmm. individual, um, the, the traumas they experience, the family experience, the reactions of family, you know, their, their own physical reactions to things. We don't really do an investigation of where the drugs come from, and, and looking mm-hmm. at that, that's it's that's not as important to us as treatment providers as to how it's impacting them as an individual. So I was having a conversation with a friend, and I had gone to the dentist. This happened a few years ago. I went to the dentist. They gave me. 30-day supply of whatever it was, it was something I had to go get a prescription for, and it had a like a free refill thing. Not free, but it was a refill. And when I got home, I took Advil, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it worked just fine. Yeah. But I, I, after a few days, when I'm looking at this thing, I was like, why would they give me so many drugs? And she said her dentist did the same thing. Yeah, that was pretty common with dentists for, for quite a while. It shouldn't be that way now because there really have been limits put on on prescribing practices and, and rules around prescribing practices. I had that same experience, and I went home, and I took Tylenol, and it worked fine. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You don't need that. Mm-hmm. So once somebody's in a treatment and they get better, how long does that take, or or how do you... How do you measure how long it takes per person? Does it de- depend on what drug they're on? It can take as long as it takes. I mean, for mm-hmm. us being an opioid treatment program that we specifically only work with individuals that have a diagnosed opioid use disorder and providing that medication um, to them, it sometimes, you know, we're in it for the long game with mm-hmm. these individuals. We have people that, you know, it's medically indicated to be on the medication for a year, but if people are on it for longer than they're on it for longer, we're not going to say, okay, you're done with treatment, get out. We don't work like that. <laughs> <They're exactly. laughs> you know? um, so it's it's a long game and we don't see instant results being being an opioid treatment program. It's it's We're in this long in this game with them for, for a long haul and it can take a while for somebody to get stable on the medication and we may have somebody that's still using and kind of bouncing back and forth and haven't fully committed to the program yet but every day we're there checking in on them. Do you need resources? Do you need help with this? Do you need help with that? Do you, are you ready to go to detox? And eventually that person finally says yes. And that's... Okay, <laughs> ready to go to detox. Mm-hmm. You're, you're giving them these drugs mm-hmm. to wean them off of whatever they're on. Mm-hmm. But they may have polysubstance use. So right. they may be not just um, using what opioids. Mean? They use, may, using, uh, using more than one substance yes. at a time. Okay. Yes. So they may be using opioids. They may be using methamphetamines. They may be using benzos. They may be using a combination of all kinds of things. So we provide the medication for the opioid use and try to get them on a stable dose there. But then if they need to go into a detox facility, then we recommend a detox facility that will provide them the methadone or right. suboxone while they're detoxing from the other substances. So we can kind of get somebody to a baseline. And Explain detoxing. What, is, what do they do to the person when they're being detoxed? Um, they just monitor them. They usually have a bed and sometimes they give them comfort meds depending on what substances they're detoxing from will depend on what medication or comfort they're kind of provided in the moment. So you're kind of weaning them off. Uh, and and it and it goes over the matter of days. So you're mm-hmm. you're taking the drug away from the person at at that point in time, and and really getting the drug out of their system, allowing their body to process whatever drug is in the system and remove that. You know, I bet it, that's ugly. 
it can it can be very <laughs> ugly. And, and quite honestly, if you're detoxing from alcohol or you're detoxing from benzodiazepine drugs mm-hmm. like Xanax or, or Valium in, in that family of, of, of drugs, it, it can actually be dangerous. It can be life-threatening because you can have, you know, it, you, you can die during detox from those drugs. So they do use other medications to kind of ease the, the person off and to taper the person down. So this isn't something you want to do at home. I wouldn't recommend detox from alcohol or, or, or benzodiazepines at home, no. Wow. I didn't know you could die from going off the drug. Mm-hmm. Why is that? What What is your body telling you other than it's going to die? <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> it, can, you know, it, it can create a, a, a cardiac issue, and you may end up with a cardiac issue. You could have, a heart, you could have heart failure. You could have respiratory distress. You could have a, a lot of different things can happen during the course of drugs. During the course of using your drugs, your body chemistry actually changes. Your brain chemistry changes. The, the drug becomes part of your body, essentially, as, as you go through that. So, you know, the, all of, the, all of the, 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 the... The wires. All the wiring in mm-hmm. your brain, all those neural synapses, they, they, they change because of the presence of the drug. And the drug replaces some of your body's own neurochemicals okay let me ask you this because a lot of people are saying you know the people on the streets are mentally ill mm-hmm. drugs made them mentally ill and if they weren't on drugs they'd be normal people no okay not not, not necessarily mental illness is a disease of its own it's and own. a lot of what you find is people have a co-occurring disease as they do have a mental illness mental illness may have existed before the drugs ever started it may come as a result certain drugs can can create some brain chemistry changes that 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 induce well, that's and, and create something yes brain changing i'm Ab- like absolutely okay. but just because you take the drug away doesn't mean that the mental illness is mm-hmm. going to automatically be cured that may need to be you know and should be treated in itself assessed and treated you know in, in in addition to and concurrently with the, the the drug treatment programs there used to be federal facilities for mentally ill people and i i guess that went away and it, the burden was left to the state are there facilities that are operated by the state to help people who are are mentally needing help there's a state hospital in phoenix but the mm-hmm. state hospital in phoenix really you're seriously mentally ill and and you are really a danger to yourself, a danger to other people, gravely disabled, persistently acutely disabled and, and haven't been able to recover. And you don't stay there forever. You really get you get court ordered in, into into those kinds of treatment. First, you get court ordered in community treatment. You're not successful. There's an op- there, there's a possibility you'll be court ordered to the state hospital for a period of six months or a year to be stabilized and then return to the community. It's you know, it's, it's important that people live within the community. There are they're part of our community. They have treatment. They go to work. They, 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 they live lives like everyone else. How come Tucson doesn't have a state hospital? Well, that goes back many years to the to the <laughs> founding you know it's tucson you know, phoenix phoenix was awarded the state hospital and tucson was awarded the university of arizona oh that's why you've got your u of a jacket on well one of the reasons <laughs> yeah <laughs> well okay Just, so but i don't understand why can't there be a state hospital type facility in Tucson as well, since it seems like we've got a lot of people sleeping on the there, pavement. There are psychiatric hospitals in in, in, in Tucson as well, mm-hmm. but just because people are homeless doesn't mean they necessarily belong in a state hospital. Yes. Okay. Have you run across any homeless person who's not on drugs and has all their mental capacities and they just want to be homeless? 
normally like right now the crisis that we're in the the homeless crisis that we're seeing um people experiencing homeless i think more has to do with people getting evicted from apartments Mm -hmm. um the housing and all that kind of stuff but i think that's a whole nother uh yeah they jacked up the rents on everybody i mean (laughs) they really went crazy right that's a whole nother soapbox i can get on but we're gonna leave that one alone (laughs) well i think somebody should do something about it because there was no no rhyme or reason for them to do what they're doing i know there's people that are at uh sister jose's i think one of the women's shelters here has seen an increase in um older uh women Mm -hmm. experiencing homelessness and it has to do with not being on a fixed income and um not having and getting evicted from apartments there's like not very much low-income housing so there are people out there that do want help that you know, may have gotten been in that situation they're evicted they're not using any substances and i've also seen people that are you know experiencing homelessness that aren't on any substances and you know are just kind of like in between stuff looking for a job and and things like that um it's there's no one real cause for the for the issues that are going on. It's kind of like multi-system kind of things all mosh posh of yeah, everything that's happening all into one. Do you think the city of Tucson should have an ordinance saying no camping out uh, mm. in the city? No, within the city <laughs> limits. I, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a treatment provider. I'm not yes. really a politician, and I, you know, that's what that's would the happen if they created an ordinance that said no camping out within the city limits you'd have a lot of people violating a law yes and then you'd end up with more people probably getting arrested and ending up in jail that don't need to be in jail as it is the corrections officers there's low th- staffing issues in the pima county jail um i think that was on the news just either last night or the day before yeah. Which, so you're going to jump up that population in jail people that don't need to be there and the other thing you're going to do is see an increase in frustration from the from uh, you know the rest of the community because mm-hmm. what you really get are people cited for not for camping in the in the city they'll mm-hmm. take them to jail they'll cite them they'll release them and they'll mm-hmm. be right back out on the street three yep. hours later with 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 a crime hanging over their head because mm-hmm. and the crime is homelessness yeah do you think this bail reform is working for these people usually the ones that are experiencing they usually have a lot of misdemeanors in my experience they're mm-hmm. the ones that we run into usually you'll have like we'll see outstanding warrants at tucson city court when they're, when they're trying to get housing and things like that that come out but it's usually not the the higher end felonies or violent crimes. I mean, we had that huge camp on, on golf links and uh, between Craycroft and Swan that was going on and Tucson police were, were never called out there for any, any crimes really. Right. There was, they were called out there because there was carbon monoxide poisoning from a generator that they had, but nobody was out there committing any crimes. So I think there's a little bit of a misconception on the types of crimes that people experiencing homelessness, you know, uh, get themselves into. And it, it's things like, you know, more like shoplifting. And, and I was going to say hungry. the retailer. Yeah. People will have a whole different story to tell. Yeah. Them. <laughs> and, and absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And mm-hmm. I and I realize that's that's really true. But, it's you know, you come to the question of who do you want to use your jail for? Do you yes. want to use your jail for the for the for, for felony, you know, people who commit felonies, violent crimes, domestic violence, crimes or do you want to use your your jail as a detox center or to house homeless people yeah yeah and there's there's facilities out there that Mm -hmm. will help them but they don't know how to get to those facilities or that they're available even Mm -hmm. we we are seeing a increase in housing first programs that 
you know, kick people into housing without requiring them to be off substances. Um, the city of Tucson is actually, you know, with some of those housing first programs along with old public community services. So, um, they're a big proponent of housing first and getting people first shelter and then connected to community services. Because if you don't have a safe place to stay, um, there's not really, it's very, very hard to get right. into treatment or become stable on medications or become stable on med- on uh, things like methadone or suboxone to treat their substance use if that's the route that they're going. So um, the increase in, in housing first programs, making it a priority to just get somebody a roof over their head first. And that way you know where to find them. Yes. There is, there is, there is <laughs> exactly. That. We can't find them. Yeah. There we is, got them approved. Now mm-hmm. they're gone. There is that piece as well, because one of the most difficult things in the world as a treatment provider mm-hmm. is to provide treatment to somebody who then goes back and lives in the tunnels or lives under the bridges and has to deal with all of that kind of a mm-hmm. stress and the, and the fears and the traumas that go with them. Do home, you go out looking for them? We do. Mm-hmm. We, we do. I have staff that are out. I have staff that are co-located with Tucson police that go out into homeless camps, into the tunnels, try to try to engage these, you know, people offer treatment to folks, transport them to treatment, you know, to, to whichever provider they, they, they choose to go to at that point in time. We will transport them. We transport a lot of them to our clinic. We use a CMS clinic that's on the south side of town very often as well for, for folks that are there. Um, I have I have other staff that go into homeless camps and on a scheduled basis as part of a larger group mm-hmm. of folks. Like every Wednesday they do a homeless yes. outreach. That's, mm-hmm. that's really that that's works and i know that the cms staff go kodak staff go other agency staff go in which we outreach to different homeless camps at different different points can you tell them what's what's available to help Mm -hmm. them get off get off the street absolutely because i i don't think there's a business in town that doesn't have a help wanted sign yeah i mean having a job or getting getting somebody a job is is difficult too because first of all they're coming in you haven't had a shower you don't have clean clothes on you don't have a phone where somebody can contact you if you actually get the job. So you're saying all these help wanted signs are out there, but the opportunities for unemployment, it's hard to get them because they don't want to talk to them. An employer doesn't want to talk to them if they come in dirty. You don't become first choice of hire when you, when you do this. You're absolutely correct. And a lot I wish of I had, had it with me because I know there are facilities that offer, you know. Yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. there are. Showers, yes, clothes, yes. we place to sleep. We offer all those. You know, we offer all training. those resources to folks yep. as well. We 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 talk about the different resources. It can be a little overwhelming for everybody mm-hmm. when you sit there and start to say, "Well, you can go here for food, and here for clothes, and here for <laughs> yeah, a shower." And and you know, you almost need a roadmap, and a, and mm-hmm. you can give them a list. And unfortunately, you know, lists get lost mm-hmm. as well. But yeah, when when we go out with the homeless outreach team with with Tucson Police Department, it's. You have probably about thirty individuals from service mm-hmm. different service providers um, hitting one camp and you know trying to provide resources for them and some of them look a little bit like the deer in the headlights because well, uh, they're on thing. drugs. No, not necessarily because no? we've just woken them up or they're not ready for that many people coming at them at once. Um, I know it's you know you wake up to somebody like in your face saying, "Hey, do you need help?" You're kind of like. Yeah. I'm sleeping on the pavement. What yeah. do you think? <laughs> okay, sort of we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. This is Nathan Chabin, producer for Law Matters. I have a goal to reach and I need your help. I want to put the DEA out of business. That's right, the Drug Enforcement Agency. If you have an addiction problem or know someone who does, please reach out to lawmatters1030.org and click the DEA tab for more information. 
Reaching out is the first step. We have the resources if you have the will. You can beat this demon and help me put the Drug Enforcement Agency out of business. I started using when I was 13. Taylor is in recovery from an addiction to prescription opioids. It was like, oh, well, they're medications. They can't be that dangerous. My perception was once you stop using, like, that's it. Your life is over. I didn't even realize that I needed help until, like, the day that I got arrested. I have been able to accomplish a lot in my recovery. I just want to be happy, and I want to thrive in my life. If you or someone you know is struggling, there is hope. Recovery is possible. Visit cdc.gov rxawareness. Saving lives means staying informed. Knowing the dangers of using counterfeit prescription pills can help those you care about and keep our community safe. As a parent, educator, neighbor, or friend, we all play a role in building safe and healthy futures for ourselves and our loved ones. Do your part. Take the first step today. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com to access education, prevention, and treatment resources. Counterfeit prescription pills laced with fentanyl are deadly. Be their protector. Be informed. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com. Law Matters opens lines of communication between you and law enforcement. On our next show, Tucson Police talks about their homicide unit and what it takes to become a member of the department. Our on-air number is 520-790-2040. Please check out the Law Matters sponsorship page on our lawmatters1030.org website. Maybe you or a company you know would like to join our mission and keep the conversation going. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Desiree from the Community Medical Services, and Dan is from Kodak, and we're talking about the situation we have in Tucson and everything that's going on. And during the break, um, Dan, who is a U of A fan, was telling me about this great (laughs) program that ASU has, and can you explain the program to us? Sure. It's it's part of the... um you know, the intent is to teach rural providers how to be able to, to be able to provide medication assisted treatment. So it's, it's like a, a mentorship program in which you have providers from, from, mostly from urban areas, from, from medical, medication assisted treatment programs, which are mostly located in, in urban areas and we're reaching out and being mentors to those providers who are setting up in rural Arizona. So that's pretty, <laughs> nice program that, that yes. they're trying yeah. to help people. Yes. Are you a part of that? Yes, CMS is a part of that. We do have a lot of clinics in rural areas. Um, we have over 40 clinics, or 26 clinics, I think, in Arizona now. But we have clinics in places like Nogales, Sierra Vista, Safford, uh, Prescott Valley is the newest one that just opened, uh, Havasu, Kingman, uh, Yuma. So we're not just here in Tucson, and there's quite a few clinics we have multiple clinics in the Phoenix area where actually CMS started um, and there's different states where we have clinics. So what we try to do is we try to actually target those rural areas that have limited access to treatment. Um, we have clinics in uh, North Dakota, in Alaska. That's, that's pretty uh, rural. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's, that's yeah. reaching out. So we, we try to limit those barriers to treatment uh, to those rural areas. And there there's some regions where we have, you know, sometimes clients are driving two hours a day to come into dose daily on methadone as a commitment to their recovery. And they're, they're doing oh, it wow. before, you know, cause when it comes to methadone, suboxone, they have to come in and dose daily at first. We don't just give them the medication and say, Hey, here you go and send them on their way. No, they have to come in every because day. Because they could sell it. Um, you know, it's just misuse medic- it. Yeah. Misuse it. Yeah, misuse it. Okay. Um, 
so you know we try to keep the community safe when it comes to the medication by by requiring that daily dosing until they meet certain requirements and then they get certain take-home privileges but for methadone it goes up pretty slowly and that can be a barrier for to treatment for some people especially these the people coming that we have from from those rural areas um you know trying to i mean it would be very hard for me when i was first when i was first you know was using to make a commitment to go anywhere driving two hours a day to do something like that well you think about it somebody's on drugs and you've got them behind the steering wheel on a two three ton vehicle that's not cool yeah yeah the truth is even in tucson with the bus system that you have there are a lot of people that if you mm-hmm. live on the outskirts of town yep. you, you can invest two hours getting to a yes. clinic riding buses get your dose and then have a bus ride back to where you came from so your entire day Half your entire day can focus just around getting dose that day. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a huge commitment starting at a opioid treatment program because it does require that daily dosing and daily interaction. And how in long does that take, or does it depend on the individual? Depends on the individual. There, there's there's certain markers you have mm-hmm. to make. There's things you have to accomplish. Um, there are minimum. What are the markers? To explain that. Like you need to have favorable urine screens. You know, urine screens that are clean of substances and, and or, or of, of opioids in that period of time. And you have to do that for for a, a prescribed period of time before you can get your first earn your first take home dose. And you earn and you and it is slow because you earn your first take home dose, which means maybe then you only have to go to the clinic five or six times a week, as opposed to coming every day. You know, then you accomplish more, you, 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 you become more successful, you are in a second take-home dose. So then you come, you know, Monday, Tuesday, you skip Wednesday, go Thursday, Friday, get the whole weekend off, you don't have to come in. But it is, it, it takes almost... It's it, a process. It's a process, and it takes really a year's commitment before you're really going to, to like, have a weekly take-home. Is there ever a point, <coughs> excuse me, that you're not on drugs? <coughs> You mean are are you asking if there's any time when you stop the medications mm-hmm. and you're and, and yeah we that happens <coughs> yeah. that happens every day in our clinic we celebrate another person who has completed treatment has 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 com- tapered off the medications completely yes oh yeah do people um, relapse come back addiction mm-hmm. is addiction is a relapsing <coughs> disease. You know, so relapse is, is very common in addiction. Think about people who smoke cigarettes and people you know who have smoked cigarettes and then have tried to quit and how many times it actually takes somebody to be successful in quitting. You know, people don't look at a pack of cigarettes and drop it and say, okay, that's the last pack of cigarettes I'm ever going to do. If you look at the research, it's seven, eight times mm-hmm. before people actually are, are successful in, in, in getting nicotine out of your system. You know, it's the same with other drugs. You know, you know. Which is the worst? Do you think the worst drug to be hooked on? Nicotine care, tobacco kills more people than any other. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to, to people that have experienced a relapse or have returned to use, um, the one thing that we try to do is to kind of oh, welcome them back with open arms. We Absolutely. don't shame them. We don't guilt them. We don't say, oh, well, you failed. You know, what, what are you doing back here or anything like that? It's... Yeah, no. we're, we we say, hey, well, we're glad you made it back. We're glad yeah. you're alive, that you made it back through those doors, and we're glad you came back to us. Yeah. And uh, it's treating that person with compassion. I think that makes a huge difference versus, um, you know, treating them with the shame and guilt because family gives you the shame and guilt if you mess up. Okay. You give yourself, like I gave myself enough of shame and guilt for it to last everybody, you know, 
to cover everybody in my family plus then some um you know to have somebody else providing that shame and guilt from the outside just kind of like adds to it and it doesn't really make you that shame and guilt doesn't make you want to return to recovery it makes you want to stay in use honestly because you feel bad and you you're you're thinking like for me i would i always would think you know well i'm already using i'm already messing up why bother i'll just continue and it's the only time i ever felt compassion from people was when i was at um the syringe service programs that i utilized when i was using um, that was the only place where I never felt judged going into some place. I could go into a convenience store and people look at you and they're like watching you. And even if you had no intention of stealing anything, they're still watching you and they're still looking down at you. People are trying to avoid you. But going into places like the syringe service programs, I was kind of met with more compassion. They would say, hey, we're glad to see you. Or if you hadn't been in a week or so, where have you been? We missed you. Mm-hmm. And that's not usually the type of greeting that you get when you're a person using drugs. Well, it sounds like it's a situation where it's 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 multifaceted. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, it's it is. just every individual has their own journey mm-hmm. in God bless you for trying to figure that out for them because yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to figure it out. No, re- relapse re- relapse is a learning process. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like recovery is a learning process. When you're a kid, you're growing up, you make mistakes. They talk about touching the hot stove, it burns you, you don't want to do that again. So when you do relapse, when, when relapse occurs, you take it as a learning process. We then come back, we take, but what do we need to do different this time? I mean, how do we, what, how, what did what we learn? Relapse? What Well, what did we learn? It isn't mm-hmm. always what made you relapse because it may be who made you relapse. It may be what where it made you relapse. Yeah. You know, triggers, triggers come in forms of people, places, things, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, basically you're teaching them to how to deal with those triggers. Well, they're mm-hmm. learning their own way of how to deal with the triggers, yeah. yes, what works for them. What we encourage is the asking for help if a relapse, Correct. you know, for return to use happens. Um, that's what we want want somebody to do. That's the ultimate situation is to reach out and ask for help. The sooner the better, because the sooner they can reach out and ask for help, the the better the outcomes are. Um, the longer you stay in a re- in you know in that use, the more tendency you have to start you know acting out on those things you know you start losing the car you start losing the job so every everything that you've earned or earned back while you're in recovery you start to lose those things you know one by one and i know anytime that i had relapsed i lost those things a lot quicker than i had that first time um and you know it's kind of like picking up where i left off so it's it's when to being able to ask for help and the sooner you can do that and the sooner you can say you know i don't want to go back to this the better the better the outcomes will be and hopefully we'll stop the domino effect from happening to the rest of your life treatment teaches you to look for those relapse symptoms and 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 early before you go to use before you're ready to use you know so how does your thinking an example of symptoms how, how does your thinking change i mean are you starting to have more negative thoughts come through your okay. head you know one of the things desiree mentioned was that feeling well you know i'm always going to screw up i may as well just keep using and you get that kind of thinking okay, going in your head where you know I'm, I'm just screwing up i'm screwing up i'm a screw up you need to be able to change that kind of thinking. You need to be able to, to look look at yourself otherwise, be able to change the self-talk, mm-hmm. you know, cause just to interrupt that that, that cycle and that, that relapse cycle. And know that as this happens, maybe when we change the self-talk, it's going and finding our therapist, going and finding our peer support, going and finding our case manager, whoever it is that you need to talk to and, and get this out in the open too. Because that's the other part is, is, is we tend to 
keep that inside of our head. Everything. Yeah. Right. And I know, like for myself, there's still times now where I think that I can go, oh, maybe I can go to the bar and have a drink. And I know how that ends for me. It doesn't end well. Um, usually ends up in orange and in matching bracelets. So we try not to do that anymore. But I still have those <laughs> thoughts that come in. And you're talking, the last time I used anything was well over five years ago. And those thoughts still come in, into play. Well, maybe I can just use this once or, you know. And things like that. But today I know I don't have to act on those thoughts. And that's the part that's kind of different. Um, I can have those thoughts. Those thoughts could, are there. They're going to happen. I can't really control the thoughts, but I can control what I do with them. So are people expected to relapse? Some people's stories include relapse. Some people's don't. And it's just, you know, up to the individual. Um, my story in the past has in, included relapse and on several different occasions where I thought I had it. I wasn't really doing anything for my recovery during that time period. Um, I was kind of like winging it. <laughs> I was winging it, you know, and it, it didn't work out so well. So. <laughs> You know, being able to get connected with services and figure out what was actually going on. And, you know, I've been diagnosed with PTSD. I've been diagnosed with depression um, and, and things like that. So being able to get, actually get the the treatment for those, the mental health um, issues helped a lot. Yeah, we don't we don't set people up with an expectation that you're going to relapse and sit and say, well, this is a relapsing disease and you're going to relapse seven times before you're successful. That's that's not what we do. The, the key is the acceptance. If it does happen, you just you accept the person back. You you welcome the person back, and we just continue to move forward. And in, in do you treatment. tell them if this happens, come back? If you start having these thoughts, come back. Well, we told them to keep coming back from the very beginning. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, I I don't know how it works. Yeah, I, sure. You know, going down that yeah. road, mm-hmm. but you've been down that road. Mm-hmm. Hats off to you. Congratulations. I, Thank you. I think that's pretty <laughs> remarkable. And you think about what you see on the streets in Tucson. And it's not just the people who are sleeping outside on, in Tucson. Some mm-hmm. people anybody have some really impressive jobs mm-hmm. in their, their yes. A, 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 addiction doesn't care what your job no. is or your social status or who you where are. You live, I mean, addiction no. strikes everybody. It does. And, I mean, there was times where I was living out of the wash on Broadway and Sarnoff. I got evicted from that wash. Um, so I know what it's like coming out of uh, homelessness and and trying to get your footing and, and stuff like that. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I kind of like to do what I do is because I can tell them, you know, I was where you were at like six years ago. I said, if I can get here where I am, then you can too. So a lot of times that gives them that little bit of hope and they may not be ready at that moment that I tell them that, but later on, they'll you know, they'll remember it. it. Yeah. And that's kind of like where we plant the seed of hope with them that, you know, later on it'll kind of grow and they'll know that, you know, there's other people that have been in their situation that have made it out. So how can people get in touch with you, with your facility, with your services? Where do they go? Um, So for community medical services, we have three clinics in Tucson. There's one on uh, Broadway and Jessica, one on Park and Ajo, and one on Orange Grove and La Cholla. All of them are open for walk-in intakes. Um, you know, and we try to eliminate that barrier into treatment by having that walk-in intake available for them because it's hard when you're ready to get help and there's no place to go. So, and you got to catch somebody right in that moment. Otherwise, they're going to go squirrel because I did. (laughs) They're going to go squirrel? (laughs) They're going to go squirrel. Yeah. You forget about it. Like, (laughs) so trying to catch people in that moment. 
And Kodak is located at, at 380 East Fort Lowell be- on Fort Lowell Road between Stone and, and First Avenue. We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. People can walk in any time of day or night to be able to start the whole treatment process. Um, you know, we, we are also, we've reached at 202-1748, and it's a, a line that goes directly to the, to the clinic out there. You're on Stone and Fort Lowell? I've never seen it. We're, on, we're in between Stone and First, about halfway between Stone and First on Fort Lowell. Two-story building, 380. It's on the south side of the street, the corner of, of Fort Lowell and Geronimo. Geronimo, how appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So, and what was your phone number? You said it really fast. 520-202-1748. 1748. Okay. When somebody is... I know you offer all these cool facilities and, you know, treatments. Once somebody is better, what kind of jobs have you gotten people? That all depends on the individual, you know. Well, yeah, okay. yeah. I tell people, like, when they're searching for jobs, once they get into recovery, I'm like, what do you really, really want to do? Because yeah. you didn't get into recovery to just sit at a job that you hate. Because that can easily lead you back into what you were doing before. Exactly. I mean, you need to figure out what you want want to do with your life and kind of, and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't we that all? That sort of thing. Yeah, our, our, our medical director tells a story about one of his, his, his patients, and actually he's still seeing this, this patient today, in which the patient just, um, you know, the man just moved into a, a job where he's going to be making about three times as much as my medical director does. So... It, it's all different jobs. You're absolutely what kind of correct. Job is that? He's going to be a CEO. He of just what? got hired of a CEO of a, of a of a small tech company. Cool. I very know. Cool. It's 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 very cool. I mean, it's just people have. I mean, we we have people who have become barbers and hairdressers because that's what they wanted to do, you know. But you know, we, people get placed into jobs. You asked earlier about how we measure success. We right. really measure success by: Are you working? Are you in a stable living situation? Are you still having any further contacts with the law? Are you, re- you reunited with your family? Uh, you know, a how lot do you we describe have further contact with the law? Are you getting arrested? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, that's so polite. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's are, are you getting arrested? We don't, you know, sometimes, you know. People come back and said, you know, I got stopped by the cops. And it's like, what happened? Because, well, I was going 45 miles an hour in a 30. And it's like, you know, that's that's a behavior we look at as well. You know, it's it's you know, but but really, it's like, did you get arrested? So, we you know, we watch the jail feeds. We see who's which of our folks have gone into jail, how many of those folks have. And we have the data that shows that if you enter treatment, we look at people when they enter treatment. We look at people after six months of treatment. And it's amazing how, how well you do after six months of treatment. People have been in mm-hmm. treatment for six months, they don't get arrested. You know, yeah. people have been in treatment for six months, most of them are working at that point in time. Most of them, almost all of them have a stable housing situation. It's, they, they've been, they've, they're, they're reunited or close to being reunited with their kids if they were DCS involved as well, Department of Child Safety involved as well. So there is hope for these people. It's a matter of oh, yeah. finding it's, them. Putting them, putting them in a facility where you can find them after you get all these resources available to them. Get them approved. Now where are they? As long as a person's able to take a breath, there's hope. And it doesn't matter how bad that somebody else thinks that they are. Um, there's always hope for somebody as long as they're breathing. And that's what I tell people all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why I tell them you need to have naloxone. You need to carry that with you just in case. Because, you know, if so you overdose and die, that's the only time that you don't have a chance to come back from anything that you're doing. 
What, what, what about Narcan? That is Narcan. naloxone. Yes, okay. Narcan is known. Yeah, Narcan, Narcan is the brand name. Naloxone is the generic mm-hmm. name. Generic and okay. we give it to everybody. You come mm-hmm. through our door, you, you have it. We're a distribution well, site. Well, I'm not coming to your office. Well, you're a distribution <laughs> site. We're a distribution site for Pima County. So mm-hmm. if you want it just to have it because you know people that yep. you, you might need to use it someday. We have family members that come in and get it. We have people oh, off the street. Oh, you give it to them to use on anybody. other people. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought you were yes. going to stab me. No, no, we, no, no. If you want us <laughs> no, to. Narcan, yeah, and actually, we have, na- we have nasal spray and the injectable, yeah. depending upon what you want to use. Some people prefer, well, we prefer giving our, our members, our, our, our patients, nasal spray. Does it work we, better? No, it, but it doesn't involve needles. Right. Okay, so, and yeah. some of our some of our folks seeing you know having needles can is is one of those triggers. It's one of those things that that create that sense to you urge to use because you used to use with the needle. I had um, an attorney on a, from Minnesota, and he said they don't. Minnesota doesn't. The state doesn't allow their um, first responders to use Narcan. What do you oh. think of that? I think that's I, terrible. Yes, that's terrible. Um, and you know, a lot of the times, though, if we can get into the hands of the people that use drugs, they're honestly going to be um, first first responders because they're usually, you know, with somebody that's using. So exactly. getting in the hands of actually the people that are using drugs is is vital to, you know, reversing that overdose. Um, I know there's a lot of stigma with uh, people calling emergency responders when an overdose happens because they're afraid to. Um, you know, we... T- they did that PSA with the Pima County Attorney's Office on the Good Samaritan at law mm-hmm. saying that if you call paramedics or emergency response when an overdose is happening, then they're not going to um, charge you if you have, you know, paraphernalia or something right. on you because we want to make sure that we get help to that person first. So things like the Good Samaritan laws are actually really important to helping um, connect somebody with, with first responders once an overdose is happening instead of just kind of leaving that person and you know running away we want to make sure that person you know we try to get that person help but narcan should be it should be in everybody's first aid kit honestly um my 10 year old knows how to use narcan i've shown him how to do it doesn't mean you know it's easy to use it's not it doesn't do any harm to anybody if they're not in overdose status so even if you accidentally give it to somebody that may be just having a cardiac arrest it's not going to harm them any any way shape or form um so it's better to have it and know how to use it than and not need it, then need it and not have it. Narcan saves lives. If you mm-hmm. don't carry Narcan, if police don't carry Narcan, if first responders don't carry Narcan, you're, people people will die. Do you think George Floyd had almost four times the lethal limit of of uh, drugs in his system? Do you think Narcan would have helped him? Does it depend on how yeah. much you've ingested? You have to be in an opioid overdose, so it, it doesn't work on any other substances but opioids. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So if there's other myriad of drugs in his right. system. If there's other substances in a system, it may have helped. I, you know, it's kind of hard to say. But there's times where we've had I've you know was volunteering at the syringe service program, and um, it took seven vials of the the intramuscular Narcan to bring or Naloxone to bring somebody back. Seven, seven, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> you stabbed People, him seven times. Uh, I didn't. His friend Somebody. did. Um, but yes, they did. They And they ended up bringing him back. And what people think as a lethal amount may not actually be... Depends on the person. It depends on the right. person and their the size. You know, we have clients coming in when during intakes reporting that they're using 60, 70 fentanyl pills a day. And they're still there. It's all based on their tolerance or personal tolerance. How can they tolerance. afford it? 
They're cheap. Fentanyl is flooded the market and it's, it's cheap. cheap. Yeah. What's cheap? Two to three dollars a pill. And the more you, if you buy in bulk, there's a cost cut in them. <laughs> you get a discount. You get a discount. Pretty yep. much. Yeah. You, you, you pretty much do, but they, it, it is cheap. Yes. Yeah. We have clients that wish they could find heroin because they knew the tolerance, they knew what they were getting. It was a little bit more, it was safer for them. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting to have those conversations with them because you, they, people that use drugs don't always want to die. And that's a misconception, you know, a lot of people have is that we're trying to, that we're trying to end our life or we don't care about our life when in reality we do care about our life and accessing harm reduction programs and services is actually showing a way that we do care about our lives. Um, we, we don't want to get those abscesses. We don't want to end up in the hospital. We don't, we want to test the substances to see if it has fentanyl in it. Um, we want to have the Narcan and Naloxone on us. Those are all things that syringe service programs provide and harm reduction programs provide. And as soon as you start getting that person to start caring about themselves just that little bit, it kind of opens the door to being able to present them with other services that they may be interested in. And sometimes it's like a waiting game. Sometimes it's not. Um, but, you know, as long as we tell that person, we love you until you can love yourself, you know, that makes a huge difference. And you run into the issue of narc- uh, fentanyl that's on the street today isn't a pharmaceutical fentanyl. It's not made with it by the big pharma companies as, as, as what you would get from a pharmacy, what would you, is in the patch and whatever you would use with fentanyl. It's a non-pharmaceutical fentanyl that's made illicitly. It's made in, in home labs. It's made in, in quantities wherever it's being made, whether it's being made here, being made in Mexico, being made in China, being made wherever. But you don't really know what the potency of that fentanyl is going to be. It may be extremely potent where, you know, and fentanyl is pretty potent anyway, but, you know, just, just half a grain, grain is going to, going to kill you. Or it, it may not be. It may, it may just have more of the inert materials in it as well. Have you seen a lot of these colored pills that they came out with? We, yeah, I've seen they're, them. They're there. They're, mm-hmm. they're on the street. You know, still see more of them as blues. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the what they refer what to they, as 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 the you know, and they're a homemade blue. Yeah, homemade, homemade blue. blue. Yeah. Charming. Can you imagine sitting in your kitchen whipping up a batch of whatever? <laughs> a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Here, I was, take this. I was I was in a conference that the DEA put on at one point, and they talked about the fact that you can go online, you can buy the pill press, you can buy mm-hmm. all of the ingredients that you need in order to make fentanyl. You can you can probably invest somewhere around twenty thousand dollars and make a million dollars worth of pills out of sure. it. So, yeah, yeah, I can I can almost picture somebody wanting to work that hard to do I that. I think they're they're now monitoring who buys these pill presses, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> might not be a good investment for you after all probably not so what's your website uh, our website is communitymedicalservices.org and all spelled out yes it's all spelled out communitymedicalservices.org and our toll free number is 855-203-6352 yours our website is www.kodak.org c-o-d-a-c dot org our phone number is 520-202-202-1754. Okay. I want to thank you both for coming on here and and straightening me out because I was confused and explaining this because I it's very detailed. And like I said, God bless you for what you do because I don't think I would have the patience. My, my parents <laughs> were in the Marine Corps and that's the way they're boot camp for 18 years. So, you know, I just... There's some things you just don't do, and drugs is one of them. 
And until next week, want everybody to shop local and stay safe. opens lines of communication between you and law enforcement. On our next show, Tucson Police talks about their homicide unit and what it takes to become a member of the department. Our on-air number is 520-790-2040. Please check out the Law Matters sponsorship page on our lawmatters1030.org website. Maybe you or a company you know would like to join our mission and keep the conversation going. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org.